Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need when you need it with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go to dinner 10 times, get the server to choose what you're going to (laughs) eat. Say, hey, you pick for me. And try it in different kinds of restaurants. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to practice the feeling of not knowing precisely what's going to happen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey there. On today's episode, we're going to talk about leading through transformation, what it means to lead a group to a place where you're no longer the leader anymore, or at least not in the way that you have been before. Um, But before we unpack that, would you please lead us in a check-in round? I would lead us in a check-in round, indeed. Uh, So we will check in, as we always do, with a question. And the question today is, where did you grow up and what was it like there? So I moved a fair bit as a kid. I was born in Ohio. I mostly grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, under the, the grandeur of the arch. Um, and I just remember a lot of like time down by the river, fireworks, and tornado warnings. Full stop. That was like my childhood, and it was very exciting and adventurous. I totally thought you grew up in Denver. So look, <laughs> look at us learning. <laughs> well, I moved there when I was ten. So okay. it depends on you know what do you mean by grow up? But right. from yeah, from early age. All St. right. Louis. Um, I grew up in Connecticut in a town called Darien, and it was very pretty. And on the Long Island Sound, um, I do remember a summer where there was like a syringe crisis in the Long Island Sound, which was not not amazing. Um, But I feel like most of my childhood and a lot of my teen years was really spent in the woods. I grew up in the kind of town where everybody had woods behind their houses and we were very free range. Uh, There was not a lot of crime and not a lot of things to be looking out for. And our parents were like, go play in the woods. And I played in the woods until often alone or with my dog until uh, after nightfall, most of the time. Um, the only so, risk is ticks. <laughs> which is serious business. It's, you're not that far from Lyme, Connecticut, where the disease comes from. So uh, that... But here you are. <laughs> here healthy and well and wise. Indeed. Um, okay. So we're checked in. Today's topic is uh, leading through transformation. And since you're in the midst of a transformation right now, I thought I would start by just asking you, what are the key issues on this? What does it mean to be a leader in transformation? And what do you notice about leaders in transformation that stands out to you as either things to do or not do? Um, Maybe just frame it a little bit. Yeah. So this is a topic that's very much on my mind, which is why I'm excited we're talking about it today. Leading in transformation is difficult for so many reasons, and it's also really exciting for a lot of reasons, which we'll get into. But what I notice is that there's this period 
that happens when you're doing this work between the initial excitement and the early returns that is a bit of a slump. And where a lot of leaders get a little bit wobbly. And even though we've acknowledged things like go slow to go fast, when we're actually in the go slow part, it doesn't feel great. And uh, it's just so slow. It's just so slow. (laughs) And we're all working inside of a complex system and trying to make small changes that add up to something that feels significant. But what that really looks like in early days is a ton of learning. And we don't have, as leaders, a lot of muscle built around learning by doing and learning while doing and getting reps of things until they become habit and then having habits that are second nature. And the early days of that is frustrating and it's challenging for our egos, but also just for our sense of what is logical. And so... What I see and the framing I want to put around this is just what some common patterns are and what we might do instead. Yeah, I hear what you're saying because it's so cognitively taxing to remember all the time how you're supposed to be doing this differently. Right. You know, I think about it like like at least once a week, I'm like, I'm going to be a better dad today. And like for 15 <laughs> minutes in the morning, I'm like super present and lean in and like calm and receptive. And then, you know, an hour later, I'm like on my phone, I forgot what I committed to, not because I don't care. It's not, not because it's not my values, but because life and habit and, you know, dopamine and it just happens. Right. And so I see that a lot in the leaders we work with and even in myself as someone who has, you know, tried to quote unquote lead through a lot of change. Like it's hard to stop being the you that you've curated and cultivated for 10 or 20 or 30 years one day right. <laughs> when you decide to be different. Right. Exactly. And because we are usually brought into an organization at a leader's invitation, sometimes a dynamic gets set up where that leader's like, okay, great. Y'all are here. Go change everybody. And and there's an early move that's like, hey, you also are going to be part of this journey. That's probably going to be pretty uncomfortable, but this work isn't something that can be delegated to your COO or to your HR team or to your team of direct reports. If you are not thinking, as you just said, about how to do your existing stack of work in a more future of work way, then it's not going to happen. You're not going to see the transformation happen inside of your organization. Because you can't do this work on the side. You have to do this work inside the work. I think that comes from a pretty common misconception. I'm not sure if it's conscious or unconscious, but it's this idea that myself as leader, I am separate from the organization Mm -hmm. and the culture. It's a thing I talk about and point at and mess with, but I'm not part of it. When in fact, it seems like, especially if you have power, either, you know, positional or influence based power, um, you're shaping the culture all the time. Like you're right. influencing and nudging and mirroring and modeling and like you're doing all this stuff that makes it not separate of you, but everyone talks about it like it is separate of them. Like we got to fix the culture. We got to work on this team. We got to, you know, let's delegate this to someone. It's like, well, you can't really do that because you're everybody. Like right. you're part of it and you're a big part of it. Right. And being integrated in that way is also such a shift. Because it's easy for a leader who invites transformation to then be like, well, my people didn't buy into it. Or, um, you know, the, the consultants from the ready weren't good enough. Or the right. plan wasn't solid enough. And it's like, actually, what 
the best leaders of transformation do, in my experience, is be really steadfast in their understanding that this is necessary and that whatever tension is being caused by trying new ways of doing things is our work to figure out. Like the tension is not to be avoided and the tension is not to be planned around. The tension is data that now it is our job in partnership and in conversation to steer. And that's a thing that uh, I've experienced recently, which is like, okay, we we agitated this part of the OS because we are having a different kind of meeting. Now we're feeling some tension because in a new kind of conversation, in a new kind of rhythm, in a new kind of meeting structure, we now are feeling tension around decision rights, which is very common. And then often the leader's response is like, oh shit, how do we fix that? And it's like, yeah, but turn that into, oh good, we've now made enough change that something else is on fire. What can we try over there? And it's a small shift, but it's a shift that has big signal. That's why I think the the hack or like the pro tip about principles is so important. Mm-hmm. You know, what do the best leaders do in these moments in these times? They get real clear on the principles or the heuristics that are going to guide how they want to work and how the system is going to work as sort of stakes in the ground. And then the experimentation and the failure and the struggle and everything is all just about like coming back to that. And I mean, I remember in in Danny Meyer's book, the the restaurateur, he was writing about the salt shaker on the table. Mm-hmm. It's meant to go in the middle, and when it's a little bit off center, you keep moving it back, and you keep moving it back, and eventually you're like, "Why isn't this thing in the center?" Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like that's kind of your job. In a, in a much less micromanagey way, I think principle realignment is really the job of the leader in these moments, which is like, "Hey, we're bought into the idea of transparency and its value to us. So now, when I see it." you know, in myself and others, et cetera, that we're resisting that, we can always come back to that as like the common ground or the true north. And it, it helps us to have that long-term commitment that's like, yeah, this might take a decade to fully master this principle. Mm-hmm. But so what? We're like we're getting better every day. This is the principle. Like we know where right. where we're going. Right. I think that is that's the genius of principle-oriented change versus practice-oriented change where it's like, well, now we've got a Kanban board, so we're done. Right. No, you're not. There's no centering there. Right. And one of the most difficult things about doing this work is that it is impossible for human beings to see themselves grow. It's like you get an inch taller and until somebody puts you up against a wall with a ruler, you just don't know. Yeah. And I look at projects that I've done where there's impatience or there's urgency for more. And I'm like, Given the amount of time you have actually invested in doing this work and in doing work in new ways, it is unimaginable how much has happened and how much growth there has been and how different the conversation is. But because we tend to work with very smart people who are highly intellectually flexible, they go through one experience that feels different and they're like, got it. It's that way now. That was no big (laughs) deal. And it's like, no, 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 it is a big deal. Uh, But there's that. Um, there's that tension that you feel working with leaders in this work between continually nudging them and pushing them forward to be principles oriented, to be trying the next thing, to be experimenting, to stay in the work and keep wrestling. And at the same time to be reflecting to them, no, this is it. It's happening now. Like what you are experiencing, the level of conversation that we're having now versus the level of conversation we had two months ago, that is the shift. 
So there's that like weird pull, I think, when you're, whether you're inside the system, like one of our clients or whether you're us, there's that weird push and pull of not being satisfied because we have so much more to do. And also being reflective and aware of how much the small moves have had impact. It's funny you say that. In my experience in my prior company at at Undercurrent, it took outcomes changing dramatically for us to all stop and be like, huh, like, mm. like suddenly, you know, the, the outcomes that we were seeing as a business were way better and there was no obvious explanation for that. So the explanation had to be that all the little things <laughs> the mattered, right? Right. Yeah. And so, but it, I remember looking back that year around this time of year actually, and being like, huh, like interesting yeah. because we do you're right we just sort of um you know we're like like the books on my bookshelf that like the sunlight hits them every day and suddenly they're white when they used to be red and it's like it just happens like one little bit at a time and we're not very yeah we're not very present to that so i i do think that's an important um thing to stop and maybe even you know notice at a minimum and possibly celebrate at a maximum like right. being a leader who says hey we're doing all right. Like, good job, everybody. Like we're in it together. We're, we're doing it. We're taking swings at these principles. Um, and, and we're all still here together. And, and sometimes I feel that way at the ready where we get pretty hard on ourselves and I'm like, yeah, but we're doing it. Right. Like, you know, maybe it wasn't like the most fun experiment you ever did in your life, but like what we just did something radical and we're all still here. Right. It's, it's funny. I've been doing outcomes work with the client I'm working with right now. And it they they did pretty well creating outcomes for 2020. And you know, historically have been an organization that had top-down goals if if goals were even fully set. And so for them sure. to shift to what are we h- how will we know when it's done? What is our intent in terms of how we get there is a very different conversation. The point of that is I'm seeing that progress in them and ironically, have not seen that progress in us at the ready. Mm. So we created initiatives in July. They did not have attendant outcomes. That probably would have been a good move, but they hobbled along and we figured some stuff out. And by October, we saw a need to clarify so that we could better scope and tighten what we were really after in the coming trimester. And in the intervening months between July and October, I was just like super fucking frustrated by mm. how those things were going and how we were teaming around them and all of this stuff. And now between October and now, like it is a world of difference. But we couldn't have had October till now if we didn't have July till October. <laughs> I know that as well as any human being on earth knows that. And I'm still doing the same thing that I, that right. frustrates me in my client organization. Right, right, right. Knowing is not mastering. Knowing is not. Oh, God. Let's put that shit on a bumper sticker. Speaking of mastery, it does feel pretty varsity to be trying to lead through transformation when your goal is to not be leading in a traditional way. Uh, How do you think about that and wrestle with it? It is. It's a weird one in our space because you see sometimes these big pronouncements and commitments at the top to working in new ways that are sometimes you know highly disruptive people leave companies over it people are asked to leave over it so there is um there is sort of this weird idea of like my last move as king is to tell you all that I'm not king um, and that I think is uh, and that I think is unusual but it does feel like it's um, complexity conscious because 
The reality is right now at present, when I make the decision to work in new ways and have more autonomy and more transparency in my system, um, I do hold power. Like I'm not, mm-hmm. my, snapping my fingers does not eradicate that power. It's positional. It's often legal. It's, you know, reputational. And so to, to make an announcement about where we're going and then to pretend that that power is suddenly gone or has morphed into something else is unrealistic. And mm-hmm. so in a way you do, if you're breaking down a structure and a set of habits and a set of norms, you do have to use some of that power for good. Like mm-hmm. you use that power to hold space, to make sure that you know there's psychological safety in the system, to prevent bad actors or outside actors from you know messing with your your plan of of uprooting the bureaucracy because that will happen. The antibodies will come, mm-hmm. and so you can use that power in those ways. And then it really is you know it's not that you're not leading. Um, in, in the future state, as we've talked about, like you're, you might still have an enormous amount of reputational power. You might still have legal power. You might still have positional power. It's just that now that's in a container where there's a lot more consent and freedom and collaboration around the organizational design itself present in the system. So you're, you're making a trade of, you know, sort of a total autocracy model for something that's a little bit more collectivist. And along the way, you can use some of that, you know, that power to make space for something that at least initially is quite fragile. And I often talk with leaders about the idea that like the new thing is fragile. The old thing is more Mm anti-fragile in either in either case. So the bureaucracy is extremely resistant to becoming um, something more, you know, adaptive and human and the system that's been self-organized for 10 years from its inception is extremely anti-fragile to bureaucracy as well. It's just the norm is the norm and we, and we defend our, our tribes. And so, as I've mentioned before, like if we tried to suddenly make the ready or Burtzorg or, you know, Handelsbank and like big bureaucracies, people would mutiny. Right. Like there's a lot of resistance there. And by the same token, the other thing is true. So I think when you're trying to navigate through a shift that's breaking those patterns it's okay and in some cases even necessary to leverage that power. Um, yeah. And if you if you don't, there's a weird vacuum. And the only thing I'd add to that is when we talk about holding space, which we do a lot, I just want to be super clear that what that ends up looking like is what are you going to carve out and protect and say – within this meeting or within this function or within the redesign of how we're going to budget, we are going to be steadfast in trying something new. We're going to make this a place that is safe psychologically and from an experimentation or innovation perspective to really try new things for real, even if they might fail. And where we are going to make a commitment not to a specific outcome necessarily, but a commitment to the principles that we're working toward and a commitment to forming the habits or at least trying where we're not going to say, Oh, I'll hold space for this day. And if it doesn't turn out, screw it. We'll (laughs) go back to the old way because these things take time and a leader who has the power to hold that space and create that safety. If they don't do so just hampers their ability to really see transformation happen. Yeah. Well said. So I was thinking that the perfect guest for this episode might be David Marquet, who was the captain of the USS Santa Fe, which is the submarine that was featured in his book, uh, Turn the Ship Around. 
it seems like such an interesting story of leadership, you know, under the water when conditions are super serious that could um, that could bring this to a head. So when we get back after the break, we will be joined by David. Ready, set, go. Hey, everybody. We're back with David Marquet, former submarine commander and author of Turn the Ship Around and the forthcoming Leadership is Language. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Aaron. Hi, Rodney. Hello. David, for our listeners that don't know your story um, and maybe haven't read Turn the Ship Around or seen your talk, can you give just kind of the the two-minute version of of where you've been and and what you've learned? Sure. So uh, I was a submarine commander. woo <laughs> And I came up in a world where telling people what to do was the way you got promoted and it was the way we measured success. And I, w- I was scary good at telling people what to do. <laughs> and I would sort of see the problem first, or at least think I did, and I would con- conjure up the solution. And, and then by using uh, rhetorical brilliance or other ways to coerce people into doing what I thought was for them to do. And then I'd label it, well, I'm such a good leader. You, I'm actually doing it in a way where you think it's your idea. But fundamentally, <laughs> it was about telling people what to do. And because I was so good at that, the Navy said, oh, we're going to make you a submarine commander. And... I spent 12 months training to go to submarine A, and two weeks before the end, I got shifted to submarine B. And submarine (laughs) B was a different kind of submarine. Now, what do you do during 12 months? You learn every wire, you learn every switch, every breaker, and basically, you know all the answers. So that's why you're the tell everyone what to do, because the person who knows all the answers is the teller. Right, right. And now I'm on this other submarine, and I walk down. It's like Alice in Wonderland. It's all these buttons and switches. Sure. I mean, like the physics are the same. I got it. But the feeling was very unsettling. And the reason I went there was because the previous captain quit abruptly because the ship was doing so poorly, had the worst morale Mm -hmm. and the worst performance. And he quit. And they said, oh, Marquet, Santa Fe. And I was like, no, it can't be. (laughs) And so so I call this knowing, telling leadership. And I walk in and and now I'm going to act. I'm going to do not knowing, but still telling leadership. Mm. And it, it's, it makes no sense, but that's just what we were emotionally programmed to do. And I gave an order very early on. It was the very first day we went to sea and it couldn't be done. The officer repeated it. It came to light. It shattered my world because in the past, if you gave a bad order, what's the answer for leaders giving bad orders? Give better orders. Mm-hmm. But this was an impossible approach. The only, the solution was I had to figure out how never to give an order. The problem was when the leader gives an order, people are much more likely to follow it. So I had to figure out how to lean back and get them to lean into me. It was a life and death situation. People people say, oh, you were so courageous. I was like, no, it was fear. It was fear and panic. <laughs> And I said, I got to keep my mouth shut. And you guys are going to tell me not what you think, not what you want permission to do, but what you intend to do. And we just use this magic word intent. And the officer started coming to me and say, hey, I intend to submerge the ship. I intend to load this torpedo. And then I could ask him questions. I could veto it. Sure. But if you said, if you went to me and said, this is what I intend to do, it meant asterisk, 
you already had permission to do it. And this cascaded in many, 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 many ways that was magical. And it, and it, in, it invoked and inspired the thinking and the ownership and the engagement of everybody in the crew. And I just say we went from one thinker and 134 doers to 135 thinkers and doers, but it was activating the brain power of everybody. And sent us on this mission, on this course, we became, had the highest retention, highest morale, best performance in the Navy. And over the next 10 years, created the more submarine commanders than any other ship. And it was all because I stopped doing what I've been trained for almost 20 years to do. I love that story. It's a great story. Uh, one, one question that comes to mind is about the very early conversation that led you to try this less command and control style of leadership. Uh, I've heard you talk about the fact that when you realized that you would have to have the ship fully operational faster than you would actually be able to learn everything that you needed to, that you got the guys together and started to talk about possible solutions and that through this conversation, you realized that you would be trying things that felt very counter to how they normally go. I'm just curious, like, what was that conversation like, um, especially for a group of people who were very accustomed to taking orders and maybe not so accustomed to having a leader say like, hey, we are in a pickle. What should we do about this? Yeah. Well, my first instinct was to I got my guys together down the wardrobe. We were standing around the table. They were all looking at their feet because <laughs> we're in a bad situation. And my and I, I'm like, look, I need you to be proactive. I need you to take mm. initiative. I need you to tell me if you think I'm wrong. And I hereby sprinkle the fairy dust of empowerment over all of you. Don't you feel better? <laughs> and the <laughs> It was, a, it was a lecture I was giving because I'd heard it so many times, but it's mm. total bullshit because what's the key word in the you, 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 the problem is you, you cannot control other people. I finally had this young officer who's raising his hand and said, well, why don't we skip where you give bad orders and we fix them? Why don't we just have <laughs> you not give bad orders? Right. And it really rocked me back on my feet. I was like, well, it was, it was, it was borderline insubordinate, mm. but I was in such a weird place in my head. And I was like, wait a minute, let me think about that. So, well, the only way for me not to give bad orders is not to give any orders. Is that what you were implying? <laughs> I'm thinking this young man's going to say, no, of course not. But he said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm implying. And then I saw so clearly, well, the, the problem was I couldn't stop telling them what to do because they weren't speaking up. The problem was they weren't speaking up because I couldn't stop telling them what to do. And once right. I stopped telling them what to do and I leaned back, so picture a domino. Like all the dominoes stacked in one direction, but now the end domino leans back and now you create the space. Now they can lean into you. And we have language that embeds this. We have direct reports. I direct, you report, get it? Right. Now <laughs> I lean back and they come to me. And now instead of everybody having their eyes focusing down the organization, quote, managing people, we're all focused up. What should I tell my boss that we should do? What do I tell my boss what I intend to do? And how do I align my behaviors, my decisions to the organization and what my department head, what my commanding officer, what the captain, what the CEO, what the stakeholders would want us to do in this situation? Mm -hmm. And it's so, it sort of lifts everyone's head up. And it, it was magic. And we were in desperate straits. So the guys were like, 
Yeah, I don't know about this. I've never seen such a thing, but it's better mm-hmm. than dying, which is the trajectory we're on now. So let's right. try it. Like, how, it can't be worse than that. We screwed this up so badly. Like, they kept going back and wanted to be told, and I kept telling them what to do uh, over and over and over again. But we slowly, slowly inched our way to this much better place. We had a vision of where we were going. What I like so much about the story is that there was this moment where someone else pushed you back on your heels a little bit. And I just want to highlight for listeners, we, we so often get the questions like, I'm not the CEO, I'm not the commander, I'm not the boss, what can I do? And the, the answer is like, there might be a moment where you're called into a room and you can speak up and it can start the trajectory of a massive shift. So I think that that little nugget of the story was actually really um, important to me because I think it gives agency to people that have things to say and are just waiting for that domino to lean back, you know, have a little courage and and sort of step into that space. It's interesting that uh, David, in our work doing transformation in large companies, though we are not usually talking life and death, we do usually have a moment at some point with the leader where we're like, well, how's it working for you now? Uh, would it be worth trying something else because you are in peril organizationally. And that is often the thing. That's often the moment where you do see a leader sort of have that moment of clarity where where it's like, yeah, more of this does not sound great. Maybe it's worth trying something that uh, feels very different. I think this is a critical moment. I I think it's just fundamentally laziness. It's cognitively convenient Mm. to just tell other people, oh, I need you to speak up. I, right. I'm sure you hear the same thing. I got the the CEO calls me, help me get my team be more proactive. Okay, what's going on? Well, you know, I I ask him a question and no one has an idea. There's no ideas. Okay. Well, like, how are you asking the question? What are the group dynamics? Can I sit in on a meeting? Well, what are you talking about? It's not me. It's them. I I order them (laughs) to tell me what they think and to disagree with me, but they're not doing it. Like, yeah, maybe it's actually you. And- Right. We, this is a huge source of stress for everybody. It's a source of stress for me because I'm trying to control people, which you can't. Just control yourself. But since that's so hard, it's easy just to say, oh, well, it's my people, my team. They didn't tell me there was a problem. Right. 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 I call this and shouting like- at the weather. Uh, exactly. Where you're fighting a complex system and you're just like, do what I want. Exactly. It's like, that's really, yeah, you can wear a raincoat. That's what you can do. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> and so I, I think about it like farming. Like you, if the farmer does the right thing, you put this, the seeds want to grow. Your people mm-hmm. are the seeds. They want to grow. You put them in the right place with the right sun, rain, soil. They're going to grow. It's like they didn't grow. Stand on the edge of the field, shout out the seeds. Like it doesn't make a difference, but so many leaders, like we do this and it's like, dude, you look silly. You look like an idiot and everyone knows it, but right, we, right. we get rewarded initially for that behavior. And now I'm the CEO. I said, well, what's wrong with me? I'm the CEO. I can't be like, my behaviors must be correct because they resulted in me becoming CEO. So David, when you were in the midst of this transformation, it sounds like it took a while and a lot of practice. Was there anybody that you were able to kind of use as a thinking partner, a sounding board outside of the ship? Or was this all kind of happening within the ship? Like who were your, who did you go to when you were frustrated, when it wasn't working, when you weren't sure? Um, Who did you turn to? Since you spent a lot of time on the ship, people off the ship are not reliable sounding (laughs) board. They're they're just not there. Um, I had a guy on my crew 
who was an unlikely sounding board. And he was the second most senior enlisted guy. And his name is Andy Warshak. And he immediately understood what we were trying to do. Andy, he, he was like my spy. And I like, you know, wiggle my finger. Hey, Andy, come. <laughs> and he would come in my, and I would shut the door and say, Andy, how's this? Like, what's going on? How's it sound? Blah, blah, blah. And he would tell me, yeah, you're all kind of screwed up on this one. And when you yelled at that sailor and lost your temper, that didn't go so well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and initially, he was reluctant to kind of tell me how screwed up I was. But when I convinced him, you're actually helping me and you're helping keep us all alive then he got more enthusiastic about it. But um, I think you need somebody because you, I, I, I think about it as you see the world from behind your own eyeballs and you, and I imagine I got to get out from behind my own eyeballs and look at myself from another perspective and you can mentally do it only so much it's a great mental exercise to see yourself. Bill Urey talks about being on the balcony and seeing yourself on the stage. Right. But uh, Andy was that guy for me. And it was really, really uh, helpful because in my own head, everything I was doing made total sense. Right. That's the right. hard part is that I think we, because we're telling ourselves stories, we can't be sure which parts of the stories are in our own heads and which ones are really describing reality. Well, I was going to say one of, one of our mechanisms was we called Think Out Loud. Like mm. so many times you have this stuff going on in your head. I'll give you, a, a, here's a simple example. Uh, you have a student driver, your daughter is driving, learning how to drive. You're sitting next to her in the car. You're approaching a stoplight and she hasn't applied the brakes yet. And you're getting antsy because you're getting closer and closer. And then you say, hey, the stoplight. And she applies the brakes, but she was going to apply the brakes in one half of a millisecond later. But you didn't know that because when we're driving, we don't, Say, I see a stoplight. Right. I'm a planning to apply the brakes in five, four, three, two, one. Brakes <laughs> applied. We don't say that, but that actually allows us to keep control of our life because when she doesn't say it, I got to jump in and say, apply the brakes. But this happens at work all the time. And so what we need to be doing is communicating our intent. Hey, here's what I see. Here's what I'm planning on doing. Here's what I'm thinking about it. Check my thinking. And we found that to be super, 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 super powerful. We call it think out loud. I play another game, which is the, uh, I call it the feedback game. So for 30 days, you ask someone to give you feedback on something that you're doing, and it helps you train yourself away from the sort of the stigma of someone's criticizing me, but it also helps mm. you formulate better questions. Anyway, I ended up uh, day third, I asked my wife to give me one thing I could do better as a spouse. And she said, do more thinking out loud because we'll mm. be sitting there and I'll just stand up and walk away and <laughs> like... Where are you going? Oh, we're going to the restaurant now. We're like, oh, really? It would be nice to say something. So um, that's a small example. And it's so easy to forget to do that or forget even how interesting that context is to people who don't live inside of your brain and look out of your face every day. Um, one of the things that I was really curious to ask you about uh, is when you were trying to give more and more control away and give fewer and fewer orders and things inevitably fail sometimes when that happens. How did you keep yourself from reverting to old behavior? Because what we see a lot is leaders get very excited about the idea of more freedom and more autonomy and more trust and empowerment. And then the first time 
shit goes pear-shaped, they want to lock it down immediately. And they're like, okay, experiment failed. Let's go back to the thing I know works, which is dictatorial. So uh, how did you keep yourself out of that? Uh, One of the tools I had, uh, I call it fast forward. And so the idea is you need to invoke longer term thinking. It's always in the moment because what you're doing is you're trading off training people to be decision makers, which is a long term project for the immediacy of, oh, I can just make the decision and boom, now we're doing it. But now Mm -hmm. two weeks later, you got to make the same two weeks later. You're not making decision makers. And so I would uh, fast forward is I would picture the calendar in six months. So we're December 30th. So I would say June 30th. Now, now I'm standing on the June 30th and I'm looking back to December 30th and I'm saying, what does my June 30th person wish my December 30th person would do in this moment? Mm-hmm. And, and that trick would say, well, what I really want is for the, or we've paid tuition by having this mistake and we have to repair a piece of equipment, but we, we should at least capture everything that we can, can from learning about it. If you can invoke this mindset of learning, then it's a longer term thing. And so this idea of standing on the calendar and looking back at yourself for me helped maintain what we're trying to get done in the long run, because you want to win in the long run. If you're just optimizing your decisions for today over and over and over again, six months from now, you you won't be there. So you got to take a small hit today so that in six months you can be better. And I think the the long-term mindset is probably the one of the biggest themes I've noticed across all the cases that we've looked at is the ability to sort of commit to a, a principle and, and kind of make it stick. Um, you have a new book coming out, which kind of goes beyond the story of what happened in the sub. And it's, you know, it's taking it, I think, a layer deeper. It's called Leadership is Language. Can you talk a little bit about why you felt the need to write it and, and what it's, you know, where does it go from here? Yeah. So we achieved what we did by changing the language that we used on the ship. And we just really used different words and we spoke using different sentences. So if you go back to this idea of thinking out loud, I would just give my people sentence starters, like I'm thinking this, or I'm worried about that, or how I'm thinking this might be wrong is blah, blah, blah. Or as I'm making this decision, I'm factoring the fall. So I would just give them these sentence starters and they would fill in the rest. And I was just struck over and over again about how these don't, it's basically like, don't say A, say B. Don't wear A, wear B. Mm -hmm. I was with a tech entrepreneur and uh, they were about to do a big rollout. We were at lunch and the team was back doing the rollout. We get a phone call. We haven't quite sat down yet. I can hear him talking to the team leader, and it seems like things things are not going well. The software doesn't work, and there's four teams from four different companies, and they're all starting to blame each other. And uh, Apple's on the scene, and and they're going to be there for this big rollout that's happening in like six hours. Oh, oh, and by the way, he said, "You tell me if you want me to come over." And the <laughs> and then oh, okay. So in other words, she didn't say come over. And so he says, "Okay, okay, okay." And he hangs up, and I look at him, and he tells me what happened. I said. Try this. I said, call her back and say, how helpful would it be if I came over? He calls her back. How helpful would it be? One to five. I said, give her a scale. One to five. Answer, five. So we hang up and we <laughs> go over there. Long story short, everything worked out great. But he, here's what's so interesting. 
Why is it that when you say, tell me if you want me to come over, the result is not going over, sit, us sitting down and having lunch and who knows what would have happened. But if you ask, if you ask the question, how helpful would it be? The response is totally different. We don't have lunch mm -hmm. and we go over, the CEO goes over. And so I started collecting this big list of don't say this, say that. Say that. But the problem is no one's going to remember 40 different don't say this, say that. So I had to create a structure. I had to understand, discover the structure. And so by looking at all these patterns, what I think we're helping people with is we're, we're, we are revealing the underlying structure of a better way to talk at work. And in a nutshell, it's a language that allows people to be clear about are we in action mode and doing mode or are we in reflection, pause and thinking mode? How do I signal that? And how do we transition from the different modes and how the language is different? Because if we're in acting mode, we want precision, we want compliance, but when we're in thinking mode, we want creativity, we want broad perspective. And our, ver and our relationship to variability is a key differentiator. In acting mode, we generally want reduction of variability. I want, I want every airplane to be built the same. In creative mode, I want to embrace variability. I want to cast a why. I want to see what everyone thinks, sees, and what everyone's ideas are. That's right. Before we narrow it down. So, so it, it requires two different languages. And so that's the structure uh, behind the book. And so I, I think I'm pretty excited about it because it was really, really hard work to, 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 to uncover this structure. But I think it's a simple structure that people can understand and then they can attach in their daily life and then their work life. Oh, okay. Now I see why saying it this way will, will most likely result in a better outcome than saying it that way. What's funny about that is I feel like the old language always provokes old feelings, right? So when you say, should I come over? What you're really asking is, do you suck at your job? Exactly. But when you ask how helpful would it be if I come over, you're saying, well, how helpful would it be? Like you've, ch you've changed the, the narrative that's overarching the whole thing. So I love that. And one of the, one of the sort of do this, not, not that's that you have in the book is commit, don't comply. And you know, that one was really resonant for me. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to focus more on, on commit instead of compliance? Yeah, so I, I have these six plays. And th these, are, these are things that we do at work over and over and over again. And there's and six industrial age plays, and then there's a six new plays. So the industrial age play was to comply. So the leader decides what to do, coerces the team to do it. Now, we don't say coerce. We say uh, inspires or whatever. but <laughs> Or coaches or some other nonsense. <laughs> His coaches or what? Yeah, some other bullshit word, right? But basically, I'm getting someone else to do something that I chose for them to do, and then th and then what's their job? They comply, they do it. So what you want now is collaboration. You want doers to be the deciders, and then they choose what to do. Now that now they can make a commitment because it comes from within, as opposed to compliance, which is put upon us. And uh, the interesting thing is. People over and over again are using co coercion words mm -hmm. and structures, but they they think it's collaboration. I'll right, give you a very right, simple right. example. I get a team, 10 ex senior executives, including the CEO and founder of a company. I ask them a, a very simple problem. Hey, come up with a number for a problem. And there's two tables of five. Each table has two minutes ready, go. Even before I said go, 
one person throws out a number. Pretty soon (laughs) that table comes up with the, they agree. And then pretty soon I I, I describe it as the virus jump to the other table. And so pretty soon both tables have agreed to the, to one number. Guess who threw that number out? It was the founder of the company. Of course. So, and then I, and then I said, okay, did you guys, did you guys collaborate? Oh yeah. yeah. So it's a bad question because it's a binary. Did you not, I I could, I, yeah, I could have said, well, how well did you collaborate? But did you, was this collaboration? Oh yeah. No, it's not. It's coercion. (laughs) Running the meeting where I say, Hey, I think this, what do you think is coercion? It's a coercion play. So what you really want to do is before I contaminate you with my thinking, what do you guys all think? Here's a napkin. Everyone write it down on the back of your napkin. Now let's all reveal it. This, that fundamental structure is this, just as powerful as changing it from how bad do you suck at your job to how helpful right. would it be. I love that. And it we talk a lot about the necessary power literacy that's required to actually transform organizations. And it's like, if that founder who threw out that first number doesn't have an understanding of how that biases a group right from the jump, then it's going to be a lot harder for that founder to get to something that looks more democratic and more collaborative and more innovative in nature. Uh, But it's it's hard to get people into the mindset that they actually have to understand the authority that they hold properly uh, as even as they try to give it away. Right. And, and, and so here's the problem. If I gave every CEO in the universe a written exam that said, do you as CEO wield a great amount of influence? And in a meeting <laughs> right. where you need to make a specific decision, you speaking first and then having people challenge that, is that the best way to get uh, the most out of, out of your people? Everyone will say, no, obviously it's better no, if I course. stay quiet. But then not. when you put them right. in the situation... So it's a, so so it's a it's a the behavior is what we need to fix, right? Yeah, it's a exactly. total muscle memory thing, right? So, David, someone's listening to this. They're a manager, a founder, a leader. They are either in the midst of this transformation, which is why they subscribed, or they're about to start one. What's your like top three bullets of advice for somebody who's about to go on the journey that you've been on? Uh, Number one, you can only control yourself. So whenever you're in a situation thinking, well, my people aren't doing this, my people aren't doing that, my people aren't doing this. The, the question is, how do I, what, what's my personal behavior? Am I asking the question in a way that will make that happen? And two, you can control the structure in the organization and the culture if you're the, the CEO or the founder. So the behavior of your people is the outcome of the culture and the organizational structure. So if you want to change the behavior, you change the because that's what you have the ability to control. So you've got to control yourself. Number two, go to dinner 10 times, get the server to choose what you're going to eat. <laughs> Say, hey, <laughs> you pick for me. Now, now it's not as simple as that. I'll tell you right now. I love this. And try it in different kinds of restaurants. I want, here's what's going to happen. I want you to practice the feeling of not knowing precisely what's going to happen. But you also got to make it safe for that person to make this decision for you. Try it at a high-end restaurant. Try it at McDonald's. See what the difference is. Try it when you're tired. Try it when you're not tired. Understand when you just say, you know what, I don't feel like doing it today. Why was that? Because exactly what's going to happen at work. Uh, And then think about the words that you use. 
for example, software companies still have all hands meetings. It comes from getting sailors on deck so we could all pull up the anchor. It that's not what you need. You don't need hands in a software company. You need heads and hearts, I would argue. Uh, we want do you want to be a can-do organization? Yeah, sounds good. Sounds natural. Sounds good to the ear. How about a can think organization? What? No, that's weird. That's strange. Why would we want that? <laughs> so all these words that we're using are programmed uh, to get the, the industrial age plays of coerce, comply, continue, and so on to, to happen. So, And when you run a meeting, vote first, then discuss. Every meeting, if it's a decision meeting, is run basically wrong because we discuss it first and then we vote, and it's typically a binary vote. And, and, and the structure of that meeting results in compliance and reduction of variability, as opposed to if you vote first in a, in a probabilistic way, then you're going to uncover the people who, the extreme thinkers on one side and the other before they're contaminated by groupthink. So it's the fundamental structure that you need to change. Don't give them a lecture about, oh yeah, even if you think you might be different than the group, speak up. That's worthless. Just you change the way the meetings run. I think that is a fantastic place to draw things to a close. And uh, Rodney and I have to go to a restaurant right now and have them order. <laughs> Try for us. that. I'm totally into that. Send me a note. I'm I, send a picture. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Send a picture. Um, Here's what I got and how I liked it. And and then if you really want to have, ask the person, ask the server. Hey, how was this experience for you? And what did you what did you yeah. go through? It's super, so much to learn it's just for a meal fun. out. It's super fun. I can't wait. Fantastic. David, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And uh, thanks for all your listeners for the what you guys do to make the world a better place. Absolutely. Rodney, always a pleasure. That was a blast. Thank you. A uh, quick tip of the hat to our engineer, Taylor Marvin, for making us sound good. He'll have his work cut out for him on this episode because we went all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, an org design and transformation partner to some of the world's most important institutions. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. If you like what you're hearing, a review would mean a lot to us. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.